3-2 to Suzuki. Kurt Suzuki, see you later. The Nets have won it. Seven runs in the bottom of the ninth. This is deep to center field. Bellinger's back. It's a grand slam. Howie Kendrick with a 10th inning grand slam to break it open. The former Dodger breaking hearts of Los Angeles. The kick in, here it comes. Swing and a miss! Swing and a miss! Swing and a miss! And a World Series Game 7 winning Curly W is in the books. The celebration is on. The Washington Nationals are the world champions. You are listening to the Locked On Nationals podcast. Your one-stop shop for news, analysis, and conversation surrounding your reigning, undisputed World Series champion, Washington Nationals. Now, here's your host, Josh Neighbors. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Locked On Nationals podcast. Today is April 22nd, 2020. My name is Josh Neighbors. Alongside me today, Connor Jones, and we are on part six of our 2019 Nats rewatch we have finally reached the playoffs. Tonight's game is the 2019 National League wildcard game between the Washington Nationals and the Milwaukee Brewers. The Nats in this one were 93 and 69 after 162 games. They were the number one wildcard spot. The Milwaukee Brewers at 89 and 73 were the second wildcard spot. Um, yeah, Connor, this game was a thrill ride uh, for Nationals fans I mean, in terms of the roller coaster of emotions. But um, we'll get to that. The headline going into the game, you know, I'm curious to get your thoughts, but I don't know. I feel like it was – things felt a bit different. I, I, I have to be honest. Things felt different. It felt like to me heading into this game that if the Nationals were able to get a win, they felt like the most dangerous team in the entire playoffs. And there are a lot of great teams in there. But they just kind of had this feel about them that the 2019, uh, 2018 Washington Capitals had – they just kind of had this mojo about them that was a lot of failure in the past. But this year, a year where they kind of, you know, Bryce Harper left, it felt like it could have been, um, not in the beginning it didn't, but towards the end it started, you know, you started to feel like, ah, they've got something going here. Yeah, coming into this game, uh, the thing I was kind of thinking about was, obviously I wasn't taking the Brewers win for granted. Uh, anything can happen in that kind of game. The Brewers were a really good team, but I did feel like if the Nationals were able to beat the Brewers, that playing the Dodgers in a five-game series would be way more beneficial than playing them in a seven-game series when the Dodgers' depth can can really overwhelm you. But coming into this game, so I thought that, that may benefit Washington if they were able to get through this kind of coin flip game and get into it. But, you know, when you go into a game like this, it's it's this is why you want to win your division so you don't have to play with fire in a wild card game like this and what really becomes a toss up even on your home field. So if they were able to win this one, I I felt like they had a shot against LA in that five game series. But I, this is not one where I would take it for granted at all. I hate I hate the fact that baseball you play 162 games and then you have one one game to decide. I understand it's a wild card, and I understand how that, that's how it works. But there's no other scenario in sports that is really you can equate to a wild card game because of the, the proportionality is really my issue I have. You know, in soccer, they have legs. In basketball, the series are obviously seven games. Um, you know, I guess college is the one – college basketball and college football, you could say, are the ones, but those are less games. To me, a 162-game season should not come down to one day. 
Uh, I mean, if it does during regular season, it, you know, it's fine. But I don't know. For for me, proportionality, like it, it just it's never sat right with me. I'd argue that your season's not coming down to one to one game after 162. 162 gives you an ample opportunity to win your division. And this yeah. sounds funny, maybe coming from a Nats fan that won the World Series. Uh, for of a fan of a team that won the World Series, the wild card. But I do think if you're a wild card, you put yourself in that situation. I think it's much better for the fans to have that second playoff spot to keep more fan bases engaged throughout the season. Um, a lot of years we see maybe a two two phenomenal teams in one division where they run away. One of them runs away with the wild card spot, so it takes teams across the league out of the race earlier because there's not that second spot. So I like it. I think that if you lose that game, you really don't have anything to complain about. You had your opportunity to win the division and give yourself more than a one-game opportunity. And and because you didn't win the division, you find yourself in this spot where you need to win this game to get in, but you still have a chance. You have that one game to give yourselves an opportunity to get into the postseason like everyone else. But I, I, I do like the emphasis on winning the division. I think there's a lot of positives that come from it. I'm I'm not here to listen to talk about – to hear people say it's unfair – when a team didn't win their division after no, I'm not saying it's unfair. I just think proportionally, like I, I just believe that it should be more um like NFL playoffs being one game, it just makes sense that you know that's kind of how this nature of football. For me, what I'm saying here is if you're gonna play 162 games, I would be much more I would be much more understanding if you cut it to like 140 some and had a three game wild card series because it's just that's honestly what I think is, is most fair. I, I and I understand you know, I don't think it's fair to have the division winners sitting around for a three game series either. So I think it needs to be one game. I'm not I'm not in on the three game series. I don't think they the I've seen the Nats win the division and have to sit around till Friday after playing their last game on Sunday. And I think that, that that's tough. You you sit around and you lose momentum. So I don't think that we should ask teams that win their division to sit around any longer. I think that the one right. game opportunity I find it fair enough. We want to thank Postmates for supporting the Locked On Nationals podcast. Uh, yesterday, had a really nice afternoon on Easter Sunday. I hope everybody else did as well, too. Sat back on my couch, rewatched Tiger's 2019 Masters victory with uh, a nice cold a cold beverage in my hand, and that is courtesy of Postmates. I was able to Postmates some alcohol. did not want to miss any of the round. I was on my couch, dialed in. Uh, Postmates delivered in a fat, you know, fast and fine manner. I had my, my brewski ready for the back nine. And if you're anything like me, you're probably thinking about what to eat for dinner while you're eating lunch. I love food, and that's why I love Postmates. They deliver food from every restaurant I can think of right to my door. But Postmates doesn't just deliver burgers and sushi. They actually make life easier with grocery delivery and whatever else I can think of, too. Convenience stores, clothing stores, you name it. So no more trips to the store. No more late-night fast food runs. I don't even have to worry about where to grab lunch anymore. Just download Postmates on iOS or Android. Find your favorites and get anything you want delivered within the hour. For a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. To start your free deliveries, download the app and use the code LOCKEDON. That's code LOCKEDON for $100 of free delivery. Guys, that means, guys and gals, that means that we're going to be, uh, once you download it, it's an entire week of basically you're not going to be paying any money for the delivery fee at all. And it's with no minimum purchase either. So your, your delivery, your order can be as small or large as you, as you want it to be. For your first seven days, when you download the Postmates app, anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmates it. All right. Uh, this game, it was a really weird game. You know, we'll just get it right into it. Max Scherzer versus Brandon Woodruff is your pitching matchup. And 
you know, when you when you think about kind of how things began to unfold uh, in the first inning, Yasmani Grandal goes goes deep on a, a fastball in her half. Grisham aboard, and here is Yasmani Grandal to right and well hit. That ball is out of here. A first inning two run shot by Grandal and. Max Scherzer at this point had nine home runs given up in his last 38 innings. All of those were to left-handed hitters. And we saw those struggles, you know, we saw them continue. Thames goes deep in the bottom of the second with a 411-foot home run, and it's 3-0. Eric Thames, here he comes again, and that one's lined into right center. Deep, get up, get up! It is gone for Eric Thames. Eric Thames just took Scherzer out of here in right center. Second home run in the game for the crew. And the Brewers lead 3-0. And Connor, I mean, as, as a Nationals fan, what are you thinking at this point? You're thinking, here we go again. Uh, right. Some people may tell you otherwise, but I think if they tell you anything else, that you're lying to yourselves. I remember sitting there as Yasmani Grandal hit that home run. I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Two batters right. up, two batters in for Milwaukee already, and and you have your ace, Max Scherzer, on the mound. That's just not how anyone imagined that game to start. And from there, you you know you still have 27 outs to play with, but you're you're behind 2-0, and, and the Brewers still have 20 out, 27 outs to go as well. Yeah, and with that tame shot, you know, you're down 3-0, and I, Connor, I, I completely agree with you. I, that was the one thing I thought was that this is, this is deja vu. Um, this is completely deja vu um, for the Nationals. And then, in the, you know, I think in the start off the game, Brandon Woodruff did a good job getting ahead in counts. The one thing I noticed going back on the rewatch. Um, and then in that third inning, that's finally where, you know, Turner battles from an 0-2 count, gets it to 2-2, and then he gets a fastball up in the zone and is able to go deep. Here's the Nats' leadoff hitter, Trey Turner. He's launched to left center field. This one is well hit. It's way back there. It may go. This is where he felt like, okay, the Nationals might be able to grab a, a little bit of momentum. But what was weird was that that home run ends up being really crucial because that's the only offense the Nationals were able to mount for the first seven innings of the game. Yeah, uh, to go off topic just a second, I know you mentioned that Thames home run. Shout out, Thames. I'd say, I, I'd say don't let the post postseason home run stop there, Eric, so keep those going. Yeah, yeah. But back to the Trey Turner home run, what was happening a lot uh, during the time Woodruff was in this game was they were able to get Nats hitters to chase at high fastball after high fastball. Woodruff's obviously a really hard thrower, um, and the Nats could not lay off that pitch um, that's so tempting uh, that, that looks like it may be a high strike that they can do some damage with, but it ends up being at their neck. Trey Turner was finally able to get one of those fastballs up in the zone and uh, that was still in the strike zone. It was kind of in in his happy zone where he was able to turn on it. And, you know, that's – it's – you get some momentum going there. It's obviously a critical run looking at it late in the game, but it wasn't something that uh, that Milwaukee – or the Nats were able to really get any momentum going from it. Milwaukee was right. able to – you know, the old saying goes, solo home runs don't beat you. Milwaukee was able to keep them there, and, and Milwaukee would have been fine if it wasn't for their meltdown in the eighth. Yeah, and then because things get a little bit interesting, it's three one. We go to the fourth. Soto messes up what was kind of a routineish fly ball, allowing Thames to second base, the one out, and Scherzer gets two um, 
two outs there to end that inning that are really massive outs. And that was kind of the story. You know, you go to the fifth, which is where Scherzer ultimately finished his day. You know, he only made it through five innings. He gave up three runs, four hits, um, and three walks, you know, and, and two home runs. Scherzer walks two in the fifth, but strikes out two to end the inning. And it's a great example of he is the guy, he's the ultimate guy who grinds without his best stuff. I mean, that is really what he is known for. Um, when I watch, you know, obviously besides that, you know, when, when, when I think about what makes him great is that he is such a competitor. Yes, the strikeouts are what we know him for. But when I think about what makes him such a great leader and a pitcher, it's that on those days where it's not his best and things around you, like, you know, the, that Soto uh, mess up and then the walks, he didn't allow that to... It didn't allow the Brewers to blow the game open, and he got the outs he needed to and kept it with a two-run game. I thought that was one of those moments where he just kind of showed you his greatness in one of those different ways that pitchers don't normally do. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head completely there with that analysis on Max Scherzer. I mean, quite frankly, that's maybe the biggest reason that the Nats are, are champions, and the discussion today isn't how can this team get it done in the playoffs, why do they keep choking, if Max Scherzer wasn't that kind of competitor, that kind of pitcher who, even when he doesn't have his best, was able to keep you in games, we'd be having an opposite conversation right now. We saw it in Game 7 of the World Series against Houston. I mean, I, in that game, it didn't seem like he knew at all where the ball was going. Still only limited Houston to two runs while he was out there. In this game, same thing. Uh, didn't have his best. Walked three guys over five innings. That's something that you don't see much out of Max at all. But... When guys got on, he really has a way of being able to to buckle down and limit the damage and give his offense an opportunity. Because as a pitcher, I think he knows that that offense has the ability to score runs. So you kind of get the feeling if I can keep them here, we know we we have Strasburg available tonight. We have our best guys at the back end of the bullpen that we can use. Um, and you feel like if you can keep them there and you give that offense enough opportunities, they're going to be able to come through for you. Yeah, and this goes to the sixth now, and, and all while this is happening, you know, Brandon Woodruff goes through four innings, three strikeouts, allows two hits, the one run. Um, Suter comes in, does a good job. Pomeranz eventually comes in the sixth, but Strasburg comes in, and this is where we first really saw, you know, Davey Martinez adopt the attitude of, in the bowl, and basically in the playoffs, your bullpen gets flipped a little bit, right? And we saw this with, obviously, um, Andrew Miller was the famous case. You want to you want to use your best pitchers, and Davey Martinez you know, took the approach of there is no tomorrow and went with Strasburg who comes out and gives up a hit immediately, but gets a double play and then a strikeout and gets to that, gets to that first inning. And, you know, you can kind of tell after the double play and the strikeout, I, I felt pretty good about where Strasburg was and where he was going to be the next couple innings. Yeah. After he got through that inning, you could kind of see like, they're not touching Strasburg tonight. Right. It's the kind of the, the feeling that, I've gotten a ton of times through the playoffs watching Strasburg where it almost just looks unfair trying right. to, to hit him up there. The funny thing is, if the Nats didn't score in the bottom of the eighth, how strong would the argument be? And maybe not fair, but would people be arguing Strasburg should be the guy getting the ball in do-or-die games for the Nats? I think that that would be something that people would be talking about all offseason. After Strasburg came in, he has the history going back um, you know, a couple of years ago as to what he's been able to do in the playoffs. But he, he really shut the door on Milwaukee there. And it was kind of the beginning of a phenomenal postseason for him overall. Yeah, and, and you know, we'll talk about his performances against, against Los Angeles. And 
I mean, the, the, the rough starts in the beginning sometimes were what got him, you know, and this wasn't a rough start, it was one hit, but it just felt, it felt like, you know, he, it took him one second literally to get his bearings as a reliever. And then it was off for the races from there. Um, pretty pedestrian seventh inning, I, I would say. And the Nationals offense really is not kicking at this point. You get to the eighth inning. And this is when the racist Josh Hader comes in. And besides him being a racist, all, all, all of that aside, a uh, pretty good pitcher. At that point, when Hader comes into the game, how are you feeling? Are you nervous? You know, are you are you concerned about um, the Nats' ability to not just scratch across one run, but having to get two at least to tie it? Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, I think that description of Josh Hader may be a, a bit harsh, despite the the serious mistakes that he did. I stand, I stand, I stand by it. <sighs> All right, fair enough. Um, but as far as his performance in this game, he was all over the place. Yeah, I, I sat down and, and rewatched this one, and Josh Hader was – he had no clue where anything off-speed was going. So you really, as a hitter, were able to lay off of that, knowing that he wasn't going to be able to throw it for a strike. You could at least sit on his fastball. If you can't do that, you really don't have much of a chance against the guy. Um. I think one of the crucial at-bats in the eighth that people may not think about when they think about mm-hmm. the three-run rally is the Michael A. Taylor at-bat yep, that ended the in the hit-by-pitch. Him laying off some pitches in that at-bat, some tough ones to, to lay off where he really could have got himself at, out, but he didn't do that. He hung in there, put together quite an at-bat, and he's kind of the unsung hero of that inning because he, he had some of those at-bats throughout the postseason that were that were huge that they needed to extend extend innings turn that over to the top of the lineup so i just wanted to shout out michael a taylor for a great at bat there and then you go on you get down to ryan zimmerman thankfully he's strong enough when he gets jammed that his bat splinters fp saying of the bat dies a hero that one seriously died a hero (laughs) and then you finally get to rendon who uh in a lot in that situation that's a guy where I think when you look at that kind of at-bat as a star player, a lot of times guys may want to do too much. He was able to stay within himself and, and really keep the line moving to Juan Soto, who really had a tough night coming up to that at-bat. It had been a, a couple strikeouts. A couple of them were pretty bad. So uh, Juan was able to not lose confidence in that and, and stay ready to go late in the game. But I think you, it took a lot of great at-bats against a against an outstanding pitcher and hater to get that done. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I have in my notes here about that eighth inning is, is the Michael A. Taylor, uh, you know, hit by pitch the walk. The shattered bat blooper for Zerman. And then Renzo, Rendon, you know, he, he's another guy who you kind of forget works a nice walk in there too. Soto goes up and high fastball to right, clears the bases there. Bases are loaded for Juan Soto. Bases loaded, one ball, one strike. Wide drive, base hit to right. Battle score one, battle score two as the ball gets away from Grisham and right. That's going to score three runs, and the Washington Nationals have the lead. They have Soto hung up. They tag him out, but nobody in this joint cares. Three runs score on the play. The Nationals are in front. Um, the Nets finally kind of, it felt like a lot of years not catching a break. They caught one. It's four to three. Um, and then you get Daniel Hudson uh, in the ninth, um, and he does a good job, shuts the door. The Nationals get out of this, and obviously, you know that eighth inning, you just broke it all down. There's really no need to revisit it. But yeah, it's I just, just kind of I a went through hitter by hitter there. 
Right. Skipping. No, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a variety, but it's such a variety. I think that's the one thing is that you have walk splinter. You know, it's no, there's no bombs, and, and we we've talked a lot of, about a lot of important home runs throughout these podcasts we're doing, especially in these rewatches. Um, the this was an inning that featured no home runs. It was walks, a splintered bat, and then a you know a, a single that ended up with a mistake. The big thing with that and with someone like Hater, it seems like you're not going to be able to extend good at-bats together off of him, so you almost feel like you may need a home run to either tie this game or give you the lead because you're not sure that you can get enough guys to consistently get on base against a quality pitcher like that to be able to score the way that the Nats did. So I remember when Ryan Zerman pinch hit for Eaton, it's basically because you're trying to see if he can tie the game with one swing. Mm-hmm. And then same thing when, with Rendon, when he comes up, you're like, I mean, it, can he at least drive the ball in, in the gap? Because you feel like, you're eventually going to run out of luck with guys just when you're battling with two outs, the middle of the lineup, you're really, your season's basically on the brink. If any, if any of these guys make an out, but yeah, I think it's, it's all the more impressive that they were able to do it in that way because it took so many guys uh, finding a way to have a positive outcome in, in so many different ways during that eighth inning. Yeah. And that's one of the, another one of those moments that we talked about with showing the championship medal. It was a, that eighth inning really encapsulated a lot of the things that the the, the champion, you know, that, that allowed the Nats to become champions. Um, once this game is over, the ability to just take a just just to to breathe and say, okay, you know, I know it's a five game series; those are pretty stressful too. But at least in your next game, your 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 baseball season is not on the line. That is that is a bit of a luxury, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, and, and I, and I can't played like it in that. game one. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they, yeah, they definitely know, like, played like the season wasn't on the line. Right, right. But I mean, it's, it's a great feeling. Um, you know, is yeah. I mean, I would say that the headline coming out of this game is the Nats have a little bit of it, and what it is, you know, we always talk about it in sports, but just that mojo is tough to explain. Like that, how they won that game, coming from behind, getting something to go their way with the mistake, and battling back in just kind of this obscure, odd way against a great pitcher like Josh Hader. Um, that is it. That is what you point to. Those, those, that's the fight. You know, I know the finish the fight was the motto, but that is the fight that you have to see. That is what it looks like, right? Yeah, it, it's, it's definitely the truth. It, it took a lot to, to battle back. I think, I think in situations like this, the Nats benefited from having a season where they weren't able to coast. They kind of had to grind it out every night. They had to stay in games where maybe in the past they get down and they might check out. They didn't really have that luxury throughout the regular season. So it kind of it kind of built that in for when it was necessary in the playoffs. And I think I think having that happen prepared them more than they were prepared for playoff series in the past and playoff games when when you're able to kind of out talent people and and coast to a division title where basically they had to grind all year and then you get into a playoff game and it's kind of what they were used to. They'd been in those situations so many times before and I think they're prepared for it. Yeah, and then the last thing is, I mean, the role player award. You know, I think, I think once again, going back to Steven Strasburg for the best performance by a role player, uh, he's not used to being a role player, right? He's not used to coming in in that situation. I think that is one of the things that we underlook is that just his ability to be comfortable and say and take the ball in that moment and go and do what needs to be done. Um, I think that's something that we need to look back on and once again appreciate because he's not used to being that guy and coming in in that spot. Yeah, that's a, that's a new spot for him coming out of the bullpen. Uh, coming into the game, we knew there was a strong chance of that. The Nats weren't deep in the bullpen for sure. They basically had uh, a couple guys they trusted, and besides that, they were going to 
they're preparing to use those starters as relievers all postseason right. long. And yeah, Strasburg came in a situation he's not familiar in, coming into a game that he's losing already, and basically having to hold him there just for his team to even have a chance going forward. And and he was lights out all three of those innings. All right, Connor, awesome stuff. Uh, the next one we're going to do three World Series games. So the next game that we have coming up here on this is uh, NLDS Game Five. So we're going to go from one do or die game here with the National League Wild Card game. Next Nats rewatch is that game five um that's actually strasburg start event so uh that we got that one coming up all right connor appreciate your time tonight nothing like another three to one deficit in the eighth yeah the other three yeah yes this one with a bit more fireworks uh this time around but yep this was the uh part six of our 2019 nats rewatch if you guys want to check out the other ones are on the podcast feed our prospect preview is completely done um, that one, all of those are in the podcast feed as well, too. Those are all, um, you know, once again, if you want to hear us speculate about the, or not speculate about 17-year-olds and say that you might as well not do it, that's available to you, too. Also, check out the Locked On uh, MLB podcast as well as the Locked On Fantasy Baseball podcast. All of this wonderful stuff is part of the Locked On Podcast Network.